Welcome to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Welcome everyone to Deep Drinks Podcast, where the drinks are deep and the conversations are deeper. Today, my guest is Kyle Smith, who's an associate professor and director of the History of Religions program in the Department of Historical Studies at the University of Toronto. His undergraduate teachings include courses in martyrdom, in the ancient world, women and gender, and early um, in early and medieval Christianity, and the religious and cultural history of Christmas, which is pretty interesting. His most recent book, Cult of the Dead, let's get a focus there, um, A Brief History of Christianity, was published by the University of California Press in November of 2022. Written for general audiences, Cult of the Dead ranges from Roman antiquity to medieval England, through the Protestant Reformation and up to the present, to tell the story of how the world's most widespread religion is steeped in the memory of its martyrs. I'm very excited for this episode. I'd like to welcome Kyle Smith. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, David. I'm thrilled to be here. It's uh, I, I've got, had the opportunity to listen to your podcast many times, and it's... Uh, <laughs> A bit weird to be actually on it now and talking to you. So thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> you did. You did actually. Uh, there was one episode. I think um, I was on talking to Derek, and we for some reason were bringing up. Um, and you, you replied to my message, um, and you said, "Oh, I'd love to come on. I I don't know. I'll be as uh, I'll, I'll be talking about foreskins as much as you and Derek did, but uh, yeah. I'm happy to do it." And so I was like, oh, "We're going to get on great." <laughs> so. Yeah, it's a deep drinks is a wild and wacky place, uh, but it's uh, it's it's awesome to um, to be able to dive into the into the um, history and scholarship and mythology of um, different world religions and especially Christianity. Uh, we have yeah. a lot of guys who have come out to say hello, so um, thanks everyone for coming out. Super excited for this interview. Um, before we get started, yeah, uh, we have a very interesting drink. Uh, and let me just before we before I do too much of a deep dive, I want to read out. Um, so I I actually sent you a message and I said on Twitter because I couldn't find your email and I was like I'd really love to you know have you on and blah blah blah. And you responded, um, "Hi David, I hope you like mezcal. So is is mezcal? Am I pronouncing it right? Uh, that's uh, sure. That sounds good to me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Hi David, I hope you like mezcal. And I was like, yes. So it's uh, tequila <laughs> essentially, right? So yeah. what are we drinking? Um, well, I've got, uh, this is a, well, see if you can see that. Oop, there's where's my camera. There it is. Uh, Seven Mysteries, Siete Misterios. Uh, so it's an uh, agave-based liquor, mezcal is, um, from Oaxaca, the state of Oaxaca in, in, uh, in Mexico. And uh, would you want to hear why we're drinking it? Or do you yeah, want to like chime in? Yeah, okay. I'd like to, because... So I'm a vegetarian, and this is probably the right. first time I'm eating some something something along the lines that I guess well, it's not a vegetable, right? It's worm salts. Yeah, I mean, so we have uh, drinks and dinner. Then um, we got some <laughs> orange slices with a little uh, salt of cosano, which is um, there you go. Um, so it's ground up chilies, salt, and then deep fried and ground up worm larvae. Uh, and I, I'm really sorry. I mean, first of all, there should be a, a, a vegan trigger warning for the drink <laughs> on this podcast. And there should be tons of trigger warnings for the actual conversation. I mean, we're here talking about, I mean, you know, martyrs and dismemberment and uh, uh, gruesome means of death. So uh, I, I don't know if somebody really ne needed to 
hear that, but um, if they didn't already gather that from the title yeah. of the book, then you know maybe this is a time to check out. Um, so why are we drinking this? Um, so it's a nod to the Day of the Dead traditions, which are celebrated most, um, uh, I think, conspicuously, most beautifully in Mexico, but especially in the, the state of Oaxaca. Um, so the Day of the Dead, uh, the day after All Saints Day, sometimes better known to non uh, or to, to Westerners, rather, as uh, uh, All Souls Day. Um, and this, this feast in Mexico typically involves uh, the creation of family altars, you know, to people who have died in their family, you put sweets on there, you put maybe a little tequila or mezcal, you put some of their, uh, some bread, you put some other food. Um, you also have uh, beautiful bright orange marigolds as a way of kind of lighting the way of the, the soul of the dead, your dead relative back to uh, your home altar, right? And, uh, and often a photograph too, almost typically, um, a, a photograph of your deceased relative. And so, so much of this book is about the memory of the dead, but also the ever presence of the dead in the land of the living, you know, the sort of bridge between the, the land of the living and the land of the dead, which was, did you see that Disney film? It was the Pixar film Coco from five or six years ago. I, I didn't. I didn't. I'm saving all my Disney. We just had a little baby boy, Atlas. So I'm saving ah. all my Disney for when he gets up to the age that I, I have to endure it. So my wife loves Disney. I'm not a huge fan, but yeah. Or right. Well, I'm just yeah. Throwing, a, throwing a pop cultural reference out there. But yeah. in any case, the, the point is uh, um, we're trying to invoke here the importance of memory, um, the idea that the dead aren't dead, that the, that the land of the living and the land of the dead are somehow uh, interpenetrable. Um, yeah. And as I said, we also have this. Uh, we we, uh, we also have this meat here in our in our warm salt, um, and uh, we we might get into discussions about sacrifice and meat eating uh, in the Roman Empire and having to do with Christian martyrdom stories, perhaps at some yeah. point. Um, but that was, as my father-in-law likes to say, a long walk for a ham sandwich. Um, uh, by way of by way of explanation as to what we're drinking, so here we no, are. that's that's yeah. great. So, so my first question is, I've got yeah. so I've got it's I've, I've rarely ever sipped tequila. Yeah. So, so it is. We just take a sure, sip and then a bite of the yeah. Yeah, just a a wee sip and um, then some of your your orange. It's not bad. Yeah. You know, the, the the chili. I mean. You don't really taste worms. Oh, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what worms taste like, but you get that umami, umami flavor. There we go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah nice. I really haven't got any in my beard, but um, okay, You're that's I can cool. See you. All right, awesome. So, um, it's 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 really fascinating that the whole culture. And just to just to before we dive into your book, the um, sure. I I recently I, I wore this shirt purposely. It's um it's meant to be Buddha, um, sitting. Uh, on his um, lotus leaf, but kind of referencing the aesthetic, the aesthetic um, part of his life. Um, it's like you know, artsy, right? Um, but I, I wore that on a show once um, with Michael Granado, and Michael Granado had a tattoo of um, Saint, the Saint Death of um, mm -hmm. in uh, in Mexico. Yeah, Santa Muerte. Um, yeah, Santa Muerte. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, "What is?" That? I had no idea what it was. I ended up. Doing a bunch of research, I got a I got a um, beautiful hand hand like a, a, an art print of her, and it's on my wall. Mm -hmm. Amazing! I didn't I didn't know anything about that, but um, 
And of course, um, I don't know if your book goes into this at the end or anything, or it goes into her at all, but does it? Well, it's funny that you bring that up uh, because I was actually planning, uh, when, I was, when I was writing this book, I was planning a trip to Oaxaca for the Day of the Dead uh, in November of 2020 as a way of making that kind of the, the coda of the book, the, the, the final chapter. And then, of course, COVID happened. And yeah. getting out of Canada six months after COVID began wasn't going to be possible. So that chapter kind of got cut, which is fine because I probably wasn't the right person to, to write it anyway, in that I don't speak Spanish. I don't really have much of a grasp of contemporary Mexican Christianity. However, um, of course, it, I mean, it's a perfect fit. Uh, yeah, and, and would have been maybe that's the maybe that's some next project, but uh, but a lot of that has already been written. There's there's a lot of really great literature already out there on Santa Muerte, um, where you have a saint in the personification of death herself, uh, who hopefully for those uh, well for those who, who venerate her, for those who bring her offerings, that there will be this reciprocal relationship, and she will bring you a good death, one that is. Uh, that's that's how she's also often known, right? Is the saint of the good death, holy death. Yeah. And and all of this is extremely wild to me. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and this would have all been seen as demonic, uh, of the devil, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's but it's it's fascinating to see, you know, the branches of Christianity and where Christianity kind of goes with its mm -hmm. beliefs is wild and varied and and amazing and kind of awesome. Um, so. I can't wait to get into the subject of your book, but first of all, I need to ask you, is Christianity a cult of the dead? And what is your book about? Yes, well, there, there we go. Um, I, I would say a definitive yes to that, right? And I mean, what do I, what do I mean by that? Uh, first of all, let's interrogate that word cult, okay? Um, mm -hmm. I know that our minds, you know, go go straight to the Jim Joneses and David Koresh's of the world. And, you know, you're thinking of all sinister things when you when you hear that word cult. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, if I had entitled my book something different, it might not have caught your eye. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's there to sell some books. But um, but it's also a, a useful and a, a correct term when you are talking about as as any scholar of late antiquity or, uh, or the Middle Ages would talk about uh, the cult of the saints, which is really what this book um, is about. So, um, again, with this word cult, think of the word agriculture. Right. It means care for the fields. Think about the word culture. It means all of the thing all of the cuisines, the arts, the music, the literature that a particular people care most about. You think you mentioned your, you know, your child, right? When uh, he Atlas, right? Yeah. Um, you know, when he's getting older, uh, perhaps you play an instrument. And if you wanting to, if you're wanting to cultivate, there's that word again, a love of music. You know, in him, you buy him an instrument, you 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 know, play your favorite songs for him, etc. So the word fundamentally means care, to nurture. Okay, so the cult mm. of the dead is the Christian care for the dead, and what this book is about is all of the material, literary, ritual, architectural, chronological practices. Whether you're talking about a day on a calendar a sermon preached in honor of that saint, 
a shrine. We're talking mostly about martyrs here. You know, a shrine, a relic, right? A, 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 a actual physical remain of either a bone of that saint or something that that saint touched. So all of these practices that deeply informed uh, all of these cultural practices that deeply informed what Christianity was in late antiquity and the Middle Ages, all of these ways in which Christians cared for, uh, as Peter Brown once put it, uh, their holy dead, their very special dead, right? Who are the martyrs? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's super interesting. So you you have a fascinating story about how this all kind of came about, and it kind of goes into the first martyr I'd like to talk about. And we'll kind of jump around a little bit with the um, with the questions that I've I've written down and sent you. But one of the first the first martyrs that you write about, well, the first martyr is Alban, right? Yeah, and that kind of goes into how you started this book. Could you tell that story? Sure. Um, so I, I live in, as you said, I teach at the University of Toronto. I, I live uh, right in downtown Toronto. And there's a, there's a small park uh, called St. Albans Square um, that I used to walk my kids through every single morning with our dog when I would drop them off at school. And, you know, I... You know, I study, I've been studying martyrs, been studying early Christianity for years, and I'd heard of St. Alban, but I couldn't tell you anything about him. And I think most people probably couldn't. He's not exactly a very well-known saint. And, you know, I started to wonder, I said, you know, first of all, I got to look him up. Who is he? What was his story? And this, the quick version of the story about him, which gets recorded in uh, the venerable monk Bede's uh, ecclesiastical history of the English people in the, in, from the 8th century, is that Alban... Uh, it seems there seems to have been some sort of persecution in Roman Britain in maybe the third century, not exactly clear when. Um, Alban wasn't a Christian, but one day there's this priest who's fleeing uh, the Roman soldiers who are after him. Again, not really super historical here because it's not like the Roman soldiers were had much of an interest mm -hmm. in hunting down Christians. But according to the story, uh, the priest kind of comes to his door. Alban lets him in. Uh, to protect him, to harbor him. Uh, St. Alban, also, by the way, patron saint of refu refugees. Uh, so he's harboring him in his house, and he's watching him, this priest, as uh, he performs his prayers. And so then Alban decides that he too will become a Christian. And of course, shortly enough, uh, the Roman soldiers catch up, he gets ratted out, yeah, they knock on his door, and uh, uh, we, got, we got images of Alban coming up here? Okay. Yeah, I just want uh, to bring them up. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a great one from, uh, there you go, top left, uh, from uh, St. Matthew of Paris, or sorry, Matthew of Paris, not St. Matthew of Paris. Um, that's similar to the one, but in any case, the, I'll tell you the rest of the story. No, you look, mm -hmm. look underneath there, the main one that you had brought up. I'll show you his beheading here. So look, scroll down underneath. Yeah, it's the middle one underneath the main image. No, to the right. Uh, yeah, no. Wow. Click on the one at the top left. Yeah, sorry. That one, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's okay. Now, underneath there, there was an image of his beheading. Yeah. Uh, oh. there, yeah, yeah, you said it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. So he, he what, what happens is, is that uh, he, uh, he the, the Roman soldiers show up and uh, he says, he, he, he thinks very fast and he switches his clothes for those of the priest and announces himself to the soldiers, right, as the priest. Well, the gig quickly gets up, uh, but under interrogation, 
Albin still insists that he's a Christian, and even though he knows that he's going to be uh, beheaded. And so as he's being led by the executioner to the, to the place of execution where he's going to have his head chopped off, uh, there's a big crowd over the bridge, so they can't get there. He prays that the water will dry up, and of course the executioner is now astounded because this guy just made a river dry up. And he drops his sword, and they got to go find a second uh, executioner. And eventually, both Albin and the first executioner get killed. And it's a it's a bizarre story. Uh, you you just had the image there of him, the manuscript image, I think, from the 13th century of of, of him being beheaded. Um, but what it demonstrates, and uh, you know, my my kids know this story inside and out. So what where's that going to leave them? And however many years. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but what it demonstrates is the something that I think is, is, is not uh, something that most people think about or are aware of, which is the zeal for death that seems to happen or seems to occur in a lot of these martyr stories. They're not the, these many of these stories don't tell uh, the, the narrative of a Christian who is hiding from death or who is fleeing from it or who is going to it unwillingly. Um, they're either unper just unperturbed or happy to get to the place uh, of execution in some instances. Um, so, so that, uh, I tell that story, uh, in the first chapter of the book by way of both, uh, indicating, um, however present these stories are, but also how these saints surround us in our daily lives in ways yeah. that we just, just simply don't recognize that we're just blithely unaware of. Right. And there's a yeah. sign, there's a sign that says St. Albans square, but how many people who walk through that? that square have any sort of idea about what the story of St. Alban was. Right. Mm. And I've often thought that, you know, if the city of Toronto that's, you know, putting up their, uh, their municipal sign, if they had that image <laughs> that you were trying to find uh, of Alban being beheaded, that, that maybe we might think a little bit differently about these saints that surround us in, in, uh, in so many different ways, you know, with the streets and the schools and the subway stops all named for so many martyrs in so many cities throughout the world. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's uh it, it's it's super interesting to me that you say somewhere and let me just find my notes you say or or, or it's mentioned in the book i don't know if it's uh, if i've written down your quote or a quote but sanctity was to be found in following jesus down just a, such a tapered uh tapered path so mm. like following jesus to death you know like you know ha happy to be um to be martyred um i i i find that style of christianity to be um um very interesting like very like uh i don't like my i don't like people dying but <laughs> so i gotta be careful how i word it or um you know there's you know it's it, you know there's other religions that you know they uh die for their faith but but like it, it, it's something well, about that, sorry to interrupt you but yeah <laughs> and that that's kind of how it started with christianity right <laughs> yeah okay yeah yeah like 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 jesus literally yeah died on the cross like he was a martyr for um christianity but like so something um uh i i wanted to to kind of touch on and i mentioned this in the book tour that we um we did and, and this so this this you touch on um saint ignatius of antioch in your book that's right you do mm -hmm. don't you yeah I do. Cool. 
Um, I I have been blasting through this book. I'm going to actually, there's not many times, this book, sorry, there's not many times I know I'm going to have to go back and read a book because it's just so dense. It's thick. It is thick, but it's dense. It's, there's not much fluff. It is, it's fascinating. I'm going to go back through it. It's, um, oh, it's, it's amazing. But um, so St. Ignatius of Antioch, he's mm -hmm. like traveling, right, to Rome to be executed by lions or, 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 or beasts or something. And he's writing to his fellow Christian pals, I guess, part of the congregation. And he says, I write to the churches and impress on, on them all that, um, that I shall willingly die for God unless you hinder me. I beseech you um, of you not to show an unreasonable goodwill towards me. Suffer me to become food for the wild beasts through whose instruction, um, instrumentality, so my gosh, sorry, is um, it will be granted me to attain to God. I am the wheat of God, and let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, and may uh, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Rather, entice the wild beasts that they may become my tomb and may leave nothing of my body, so that when I have fallen asleep in death, I may be no, no longer a trouble to anyone. Then shall I truly be a disciple of Christ when the world shall not, not see so much as my body. And it's like, he's like, then I will be a disciple. You know, like I'm going to my death for Christianity. And after I've been consumed by these lions, been ground by the teeth of these lions, then I'll be truly a disciple of Jesus. And that's, that's what wild to me. How like that yeah. is, that is someone who believes in their cause. Um, it's, it's astounding, isn't it? I mean, you know, that he's saying there, uh, don't do me a disservice. You know, don't get in the way of me being killed. Allow me, as you read uh, from the letter to the Romans there, uh, Ignatius's letter to the Romans, we're not talking Paul here, uh, Ignatius's yep. letter to the Romans, allow me to be, you know, ground in the, like, like grist, in the mill of martyrdom so that I can be baked into Christ's pure bread, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's an astounding passage that, that echoes what I was saying about St. Alban, that it's not people who are uh, unwilling. Um, and, and, I mean, it, look, it's, uh, it's a bit over the top with Ignatius. You don't have that sort of get out of the way, here I come, throw me <laughs> yeah. to the beasts with a whole lot of sources. Um, but it's illustrative of the point that for Ignatius especially, he specific, what he specifically says in that letter is that this is what it means to be a true disciple, is to willingly go to death uh, rather than renounce Christ. Um, and that is something that gets repeated in story after story about all of the apostles with two exceptions, uh, Judas, who uh, either, depending on which part of the, the, the New Testament you're reading, either was hung or fell into a field and then uh, burst asunder and his, his intestines gushed out. Uh, or uh, or this, the other one being, uh, being John the apostle who said, is said to have died of old age. All the others in one story or another are said to have been killed. And the ways in which they get killed are, are I mean, it, it's super lurid. It's like Simon the Zealot gets sawn in half. Uh, Matthew gets stabbed. Thomas gets stabbed. P 
Peter apparently is crucified on an upside down cross. Um, and, you know, oh, the, the, you know, the, the worst one of them all is Bartholomew, um, who is flayed, he's skinned, right? And if, you, if anybody who's been to the Vatican, you can see in Michelangelo's fresco uh, of the Last Judgment, the altar wall fresco there, um, you've got Bartholomew who's kind of hovering on a cloud at Jesus's feet. And in one hand, he's holding a flensing knife. And in the other hand, he's holding the empty bag of his own skin. Um, and, you know, the, it's, I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, what these stories illustrate, you know, I think you, you mentioned, you know, your friend uh, who's an apologist. And I think a lot of apologists might want to turn to these stories. And there's a common argument, right? And it goes something like this, that, see, this demonstrates the truth of the resurrection, because why would anybody die for a myth, right? Mm. All right, but putting aside the, the sort of logical holes uh, in that argument, I mean, uh, let's just, let's leave that aside. The, the point that these things, that these stories illustrate is that, isn't that they're true or not. And I mean, we can talk about, you know, historicity of, of certain texts, um, but what, the, what these stories about the deaths of the apostles illustrate is that many early Christians, and a lot of these stories are late, by the way, like fourth, fifth, sometimes even sixth century, um, that they believed that those who were closest to Jesus would have naturally have followed him in death. Right. For every single apostle, there are oftentimes multiple stories written about their deaths. Uh, my friend and colleague David Eastman has a book that's entitled The Many Deaths of Peter and Paul, where he collects and narrates all of these different stories. The Acts of Peter, the martyrdom of Paul, the Acts of Peter and Paul, the martyrdom of Peter and Paul. And they get written uh, over many over many decades, many centuries, all narrating in their own way. Uh, how those closest to Jesus also died. Mm. Yeah, it's it, it's also wild to me that that Christians uh, apologists will make that argument that it must be true because they followed Jesus unto death, right? They like why, why? they believe like they they truly believe that. But the problem with that argument, I, I find, is you know. Um, in America, you had that the tragic you know nine eleven uh, terrorist attacks, obviously. The people who were flying the planes, they definitely believe what they were believing, right? To to fly those planes, you know, to create, commit that terrorist act. Um, and you have um, other religions as well, not just Islam, that you know have uh, suicide and uh, and, and um, as as a form of um of I guess veneration um, or I guess uh, against. Uh... Now I, I, this is a serious trigger warning. Um, I'm going to show an image. It's not super graphic but it is it's pretty graphic so come back in 15 seconds if you don't want to see something but um but rage against the machine has a you know their their, their first album had the um a, uh, an image of a monk who set themselves on fire as the as a cover now this image is yeah. on youtube so i know it's not gonna be okay it's gonna be okay but this monk was protesting this buddhist monk was protesting the vietnam war they brought they told all these news organizations they came here and then he just set himself on fire and then just burned to death is sitting in that position mm -hmm. um that is also someone who very much believes what they believe you know to, to set themselves on to lot to pour them gasoline all over themselves and set themselves on fire i'm not going to show that image again if anyone's come back now um but uh it's uh yeah it's 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 quite gruesome i 
I would be fascinated to know what if we had cameras, uh, what we would see in in Christendom, you know, in 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 Christianity, its history, uh, what we would see of the martyrs, because the stories that we have of them are very wild and and and, in, and crazy. Like um, like you said, Bartholomew getting skinned, flailed. Um, yeah, yeah. Well. Uh... We don't have any instances of people dousing themselves in uh, fourth century gasoline and setting themselves <laughs> on fire. So that's you know that's a, a bit of a different thing. Um, but I mean, what you what you do raise with that image, David, is you know an interesting point about uh, the voluntarily voluntariness. Uh, if, is that a word? We're, 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 we'll make it a word. Um, yeah, we'll voluntariness. Word. I think that's a word. You're asking the wrong um, person. Yeah. <laughs> I used the word the wrong. The, 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 volun words. the voluntariness of death, right? Yeah. Um, that uh, that's not something that uh, gets really. You know, you're not supposed to go and find um, somebody and announce to them that you're a Christian and say, "Hey, please, you know, make sure that I get killed." Right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are stories of of that of that happening, but that maybe those stories are being told specifically by way of critiquing it. Um, and you know, one of the most uh, renowned uh, martyrdom narratives that we have from, from antiquity is the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp. And Polycarp, uh, one, of the, one of the main reasons why it's so interesting is because uh, of how early it is, uh, probably not written. It was, it's set in the middle of the second century. It's probably not written as a number of scholars, namely Candida Moss, uh, but a number of others have, I think, quite convincingly argued that the text as we have it has elements that are un really unlikely to be mid-2nd century, that it's probably a, a text that was written some, sometime in that first half of the 3rd century. But there's, I'll tell the story in, in just a second, but there's a character in there named Quintus, and you know he uh, he goes he comes forward voluntarily in the city of Smyrna, uh, which is where this story is set. This is Izmir on the Aegean coast of what's now of southwestern uh, Aegean coast of what's now Turkey. Polycarp is the bishop. He kind of retires. Polycarp does to a, a country estate when there are people, at least according to the text, kind of lowing for the blood of of, uh, of Christians. Um, he's not fleeing but he's just not voluntarily sticking himself forward. Quintus does, and then he's shown to the beasts, uh, you know, where he's, you know, he's gonna be tossed to the lions, and then says, oh, hang on a second. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna back out of here. I'm gonna recant what I said, right? And that's precisely what, you know, at least narratively speaking, the text is, is saying to you, you know, you, you who are reading this, um, don't do this, right? Um, and, and I should also inter interject here that um, we've got tons of stories, uh, whether they're actually narrating things that, uh, that actually happened is, that's a completely different topic, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, from my interest in, uh, in using these stories, just like with the stories of the apostles, isn't this question of, are they true or not, but rather that they exist at all that we have them is what I think is interesting because they've been copied and they've been repeated 
I mean, as, as, I, as I mentioned in the book, how else would Michelangelo know how to paint Bartholomew like he did if there hadn't been centuries of tradition passing down this story, right? Mm. So uh, it's as, as the American anthropologist uh, from the 60s and 70s, Clifford Gertz once put it so, so well, uh, culture is the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And the culture of early and medieval Christian martyr, uh, early and medieval Christianity, is the is the culture that's centered around the saints in large part. Okay, um, but this story about Polycarp to come back to it. Okay, so he's this bishop of Smyrna, mid second century, um, and he. The, what's interesting here is uh, again the connection, the direct connection. He supposedly um, was a disciple of John the Apostle who himself was a <laughs> disciple of Jesus. So you've got an unbroken chain here, which is intriguing. Um, he retires to his country estate. So many elements of the story um, end up mirroring uh, uh, the, the story that we find you know, in the gospel of the, of the passion narrative, right? Where when he's finally brought, when he's finally uh, found, he's reclining in an upper room, you know, kind of sounds like the Last Supper, right? Uh, he tells somebody to give the, you know, imperial goons who have found him a meal while he finishes his prayer. He's totally calm in the face of, you know, being arrested here. When he when he's brought back into Smyrna, it's on the back of a donkey. He's interrogated by a man named Herod. Like, they're kind of, you know, beating you over the head here with the, the parallels to, you know, the story of Jesus's death. Um, and then uh, the call, you know, what he hears in the in the stadium, um, it, at least according to this text, is an interesting one. All of these people are saying, "Kill the atheists," referring to the Christians, which might make you scratch your head. Why? Why are they calling Christians atheists? Well, look what they're not doing. Look what they're refusing to do. They're refusing to offer sacrifice. To the Roman gods, whether it's a pinch of incense on for the emperor or a, a little bit of wine or an animal sacrifice, uh, they're refusing to do that. And, and by refusing to, to offer that sacrifice, they are not serving the gods who helped the state of Rome, right? They're the they're atheists. They're, they're not doing their duty, um, you know, for the empire. Yeah. So is that his, so that's historic, because I always thought that was just like a like an atheist edgelord talking point that in Rome the um you know the the, Christ, the the Christians were called atheists by the Romans and I thought that was like that I thought that was like kind of a myth but is that you saying that's actual history? Um, well, uh, I mean we have that in in this text um, and we also know um, I mean we do have uh, certain instances in well we do have uh, we do have examples of uh, periods of history, mainly in the third century, with the emperor Decius, um, who looms large in uh, the Christian his, uh, historical imagination, because uh, he seems to have put forward. He, he he was only emperor for a couple of years, but he seems to have put forward this decree um, that everybody had to sacrifice an animal and have proof of it, right? That they sacrificed an animal uh, to the gods of Rome. OK, mm -hmm. so if you read the Christian sources about Decius, and by the way, we don't have the text of the edict itself. We only know about it, really, or at least we did until uh, something I'll tell you about in a second, through the Christian sources. And according to the Christian sources, uh, this was directed at them. Right. Mm -hmm. 
what was interesting is that in, uh, I can't remember when these were discovered, but there are something like 50 uh, receipts, basically, that were found, papyrus receipts that were, that were found in the Egyptian desert um, that actually say, I such and such uh, have witnessed, you know, David doing the sacrifice and he claims that he's done it, that he always does this, etc. right? And what's really intriguing about it, finding these receipts, is that one of them, for example, says, you know, I, I can't remember the person's name, a priestess of the goddess Tsukos, right? This is not a Christian, right? This was an imperial-wide decree to sacrifice. And, you know, part of the reason was, is because the empire was falling apart in the middle of the third century. You had, uh, you had Germanic tribes uh, in the north, you had Persians in, in the east, you had, you know, the sort of constant rotating, uh, you know, assassination of, of emperors, you had rebellions, you had the, the coinage had been devalued, like it was a bad situation. And Decius's edict seems to have been a way of having everybody in the empire take care of the gods, do what they needed to do to take care of the gods so that the gods would you know, take care of you uh, in the Roman Empire. Um, I've lost the thread here. Where were we going with, uh, well, where did we end up on this? No, um, this is what, this is, this is exactly, the thread is everywhere with deep drinks, especially when we're drinking tequila. <laughs> it's actually, I, um, so don't, don't worry about that. But one thing I did want to mention is it's interesting that you say that. I just was reminded about how, you know, they were, they were performing these these rituals and became law to perform these rituals and, and sacrifice, and because because Rome was falling apart, and it just reminds me so much of um of Carl Sagan's quote uh, where have you have you read uh, much Carl Sagan or do you know De Carl Sagan Demon Haunted World? He, he's written wrote a book on or I, I mean well, I know who Carl Sagan is, but I don't know this book to which you're yeah. referring. Um, so, uh, he said, he said in, um, in Demon Haunted World, which is about science as a candle in the dark, he says, I worry that especially as the millennium edges nearer pseudoscience and superstition will seem year by year more tempting. The siren song of unreason, more seronious and attractive. Where have we heard before? Whenever our ethnic or national prejudice prejudices are aroused in times of scarcity during challenge of um, to national self-esteem or nerve when we agonize about our diminishing cosmic place and purpose or when uh, fanaticism is bubbling up around us then habits of thought familiar from ages past reach for the controls the candle flame flickers the little pool of light trembles darkness gathers the de the demons begin to stir and i find that a I find that so typical of humanity that when we're desperate, when things are going bad, we reach, we, we, we look, mm. we look to the, the ages past. Maybe if we return to tradition. If we, if we do these, these, uh, these prayers, these rituals, these, that we, we, we pray to this God of, or if we, um, or superstitious beliefs start to creep in. And it's interesting that you brought that up, that, that that's the reason why it became kind of this decree, uh, in the Roman empire, because Rome was falling apart. And so it's like, you know, Polycarp, you have to, you know, sacrifice your animals, and and um, we're talking about Polycarp, right? We weren't moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sorry, I've I've jumped around too much chronologically. So Decius's decree is in uh, two fifty. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Polycarp is a, is a full century earlier, but okay. there there I mean there is there is this mention to get back on our thread uh, yeah. of 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 calling Christians atheists, right? Because yes, they're not yes, they're yes. not doing what they need to do to support the Roman state, right? Uh, 
Mm. Um, but what's interesting to come back to uh, this Polycarp story um, is that uh, once he's in the arena, um, once he's finally condemned, um, and the whole story of his trial is a little is a little murky. Uh, that that wasn't how trials happened in the middle of the arena like that, right? But you, but he has this interrogation that's that's going on. Finally, when he's condemned to death, what happens? He he's about to be nailed to a stake. Again, notice the parallels here uh, between that that story here of Polycarp and the story of Jesus. Um, and he says, I mean, it's almost kind of arrogant, right? He says, he says, I don't need your nails. Just you know, give me some ropes here. So he gets bound, you know, with ropes to the stake. Um, but this also kind of is invoking another sacrifice, uh, a very different kind of sacrifice. Okay, we have the sacrifice of Jesus right, who becomes the Paschal Lamb through his death uh, at the time of the Passover in, in Jerusalem. But the binding here to a stake, what does that jar your mind of? Um, I mean, you know uh, biblical history here. We've, this is a reference, I think, pretty clearly to the, you know, the binding of Isaac, uh, the story of Abraham, right? And so you do have a sacrifice here, but it's the sacrifice of Polycarp's self, uh, that's going on here. And we've got, you know, it's mimicking the story uh, of, of the binding of Isaac. It's certainly mimicking the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and so then what they do is uh, then they, they light a fire. They light a fire around him. He had had this dream, apparently, uh, that his pillow had burst into flames. And we, we learned that way earlier on in the story. And now his dream is coming true because he's been, he's been tied to a stake. He's going to burn, but he doesn't burn. The, according to the text, the, the, the fire sort of envelops him. It, I think the, 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 the way it's phrased is um, uh, like a linen sail filled by the wind. It's really beautiful, right? So the fire mm. goes all around him and he doesn't burn. And it, uh, the text, the author of the text talks about him being, you know, refined, like, like gold refined in a furnace. Well, what story are we referring to now here, too, right? <laughs> it's, it's a book of Daniel, right, of the of the three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, yeah. and Abednego, right, who end up in the furnace, but they don't burn. Eventually, somebody's got to run him through with a, store, a sword. His blood gushes out and quenches the flames. But then when the fire is relit to burn all of his flesh, you know, away from his bones, after that happens, according to the text, the, the Christians swoop in because what are they interested in? They're interested in his bones. And according to the text, that then they're deposited in some fitting place. It's unclear where. And that Christians go there on the anniversary of his death, year by year by year, to remember him, to tell his story, and to venerate uh, his bones. And it's it's that sort of the, the interest in relics um, that has led Kendra DeMoss, among others, uh, there are other reasons for this too, to say, wait a minute, this doesn't quite sound like a mid second century text. Maybe this is probably something that fits a little bit better um, in a third century context. But the importance of this text is that it is a pretty early martyrdom narrative um, that you have this intentional sort of imitation of Christ, that even in the way in which the story is narrated, there are elements that sound like uh, uh, the, 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 the crucifixion or the, or the death of Jesus. Um, and that there are so many other biblical parallels here that get played with, uh, narratively speaking. It's fascinating. Well, yeah, and, and this whole idea of um, uh, parallel, like, kind of 
perspectives in like the Christian writings is 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 is, is has blown my mind recently. We had uh, Dr. Josh and a seriologist come on, and he talked about. Um, and I, you you might not know this, or you might know this. Um, your your uh, you, you mentioned that you don't necessarily do Bible scholarship, but you do um, history mainly. But the, there's the idea that the Abrahamic uh, um, the the story of Abraham is a polemic against the Mesopotamian idea, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. That Gilgamesh goes into you know he he um, he goes into the the wilderness, he, he gets drunk off beer, and then and the whole narrative is towards civilization where the story of Abraham is the opposite. They leave civilization and he goes around in tents. It's like, it's like moving away from the Mesopotamian civilization. So it's like mm -hmm. a polemic. It's a, it's a play on, it's like, this is our story. Our story is actually moving away from uh, what we consider to be like the Hebrews as, as evil, which is the Mesopotamian society. Um, but then furthermore, uh, I had, uh, and for the patrons who are here, and thank you guys, um, I, I see all you guys um, here. In fact, let me just quickly bring this up. Uh, D, who's one of the lovely supporters, says, this topic is really hitting me. I'm reading Saints Preserved in Encyclopedia of Relics right now. So that's, that's awesome. I'm glad that you're enjoying the stream. Um, but something that kind of blew my mind, it, well, two things, is one, we had, um, and let me just share a video. My Patreon supporters would have already seen the rough draft of this. But uh, we had... Um, Dr. Kip Davis on, right? So this is a video. It'll be released soon. I'm 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 kind of working on it. But um can you hear that? I cannot. You cannot hear that. Uh let me just uh stop sharing. I've got to uh sorry, I've got to you should be able to hear it now. Is something uncovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the most famous things that, that is attributed to on the mount the beatitudes mm -hmm. they're in the dead sea scrolls really the dead sea scrolls are a collection so and so time by jesus hang on hang on sorry hang on i'm just trying to how much whiskey have i drunk did i just hear you, so you're saying that one of the most famous preachers by jesus there's record of that before jesus's time yes no i was blown yeah, away really? but we uh, go need... we go into it a little bit it's obviously not a it's not a one-to-one -one, but we go into like how it's the you know eight eight uh eight blessed b statements plus a, uh, a, a long ninth one but then further on we talk about you know um there's this book um by dennis mcdonald uh let me just find it um called synopsis of epic tragedy and the gospels and he talks about the 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 similarities between Odysseus going to um, uh, Percy's magic, going to um, an island and meets a um, a giant, versus the the story of um, Jesus turning, going to the land of the Gerasenes and healing the demon possessed man, and the 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 similarities are incredible. Turned Odysseus's soldiers into swine. Jesus subdued about two thousand demons with his divine power and sent them into the swine, and then drove the swine into the lake. Polyphemus, the shepherd, called out to his neighbors. The swineherds called their neighbors. In the so, to me, this the, I mean, I won't show, show the whole video because it'll spoil it. But this video is going to be wild, and the patron supporters have really liked it. Um, patrons have liked it, but it's 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 wild. Like to me, the the similarities between, and I'm not saying this is an open and shut case, or that that the stories were taken from these these things. Obviously, that's um, you know, history can only kind of point to 
similarities, I guess. But it is interesting that that there are these, not just within the biblical canon and, and the biblical stories, there's this tradition of taking something from the past and kind of trying to explain it uh, or, or or tie up kind of loose ends. Like the story that the Christianity is all about that, right? Maybe you can touch on that. Is it's like it's like a it's like a fulfillment of the promise with Abraham and Isaac, right? Like the sacrificing of a child. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm certainly no biblical scholar and would would make no pretense or, or claims to be one. Um, so not to comment on on uh, some of the clips that you've brought up, but uh, the the broader principle here is certainly the case, right? In the sense of there are intertextual relationships where one text is drawing from, uh, responding to, uh, uh, expand, expanding upon uh, elements that it that the author has found in previous texts. I mean, that's true even for, just to give one simple example, for the, the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, Matthew uh, is all the time reaching back to uh, the Hebrew Bible by way of explaining what he's talking about in his particular narrative, right? Um, or, uh, you know, one of the things that um, that I talk about with, with my undergraduates is if you read a text, if you're an ancient author, right, and you read mm -hmm. a text that you theologically don't agree with or want to offer some commentary on, what's, what's the best approach to get your idea out there? Is it to offer a line-by-line -line commentary? Is it to offer some sort of analysis that, first of all, how's that going to be distributed if you're talking about antiquity? Books are incredibly expensive to, to make and distribute. Um, and secondly, only a small subset of your fellow scholars are actually going to be reading that. So if you want to if you want to use those other texts and critique them or comment upon them, what do you do? You tell another story, right? That's for example, we you you know you and I had exchanged emails uh, and and we had mentioned or I had mentioned the Proto Evangelium of James, which is this pre-gospel, um, you know, that tells the story of of Mary and it and it kind of it doesn't and it it, it it ends almost with Jesus's birth. That's not quite the end of it, but that's very close to the end, right? So the, mainly the story is about Mary. And what the story, uh, what that gospel is doing is it's commenting upon the nativity stories that we find in Luke and Matthew by way of emphasizing the perpetual virginity of Mary, right? Yeah. Um, so th that's what I'm saying. And I think that's what you're saying too, in terms of mm. the reuse of other texts and then the, the slight changing of them, or in this case, the, the pretty radical changing of them uh, to say something new, right? Yeah. To say something that sounds old because the, the last thing you want to be uh, is novel, is completely novel, right? You have to be absorbed in a particular tradition. You have to say things that make sense to your listeners, right? Because they've heard it before, but then oop, there's a little twist and you take the story in a, a slightly different direction. Yeah, uh, I, I actually had it on the notes here to um, to do the pre-gospel of James. Uh, and I was wondering if you could give everyone a, because it was fascinating, right? Mm. I was wondering if you could give everyone, like give us the, 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 the five minute story, I guess, like just go through, a short, ver a short retelling of what actually happens in the pre-gospel of James. Can you do that? 
Sure. And this I'll, is also this is also in your book, which everyone should go purchase. It is a fantastic book, and your lovely wife did the artwork for this, which I don't need to tell you. It is one of the best looking books that I have in my um, in my arsenal. It's well, thank you. And but but just to give credit where credit is due, um, so Paul Davis, who's a, a British uh, printmaker, um, he's the one who did the 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 linotype, that actual image of the skull. My wife did the design, but, uh, but yeah. that was based on his print uh, and his drawing and then print of a of a prayer bead that he saw at the Met in New York. Oh, it's just, so, it just yeah. it really looking book. Like I, I thank you. Yeah, awesome and fantastic yeah. content as well. It's not just the cover. I didn't quite just for the cover. Um, right. but, uh, well, but but it, I mean, it is worth it just as a you know as a coffee table item, even if you yeah. never actually open it up. It's you know it's a nice little conversation piece. There we go. Um, I'll give you the really quick version of the the Proto Evangelium of James. Um, so, but let's quickly back up. Right. It, uh, What's the Christmas story, right? Everybody thinks, but just because you've seen your grandmother's crush, that you've got you've got shepherds, you've got the wise men, you've got the star, you've got the manger. Um, people who are deeply familiar with uh, the New Testament recognize that first of all, um, many of your the people listening here might know this too. Only Matthew and Luke tell the story of Jesus's birth, and they don't tell the same story. Luke is the one who mm -hmm. talks about the shepherds. Luke is the one, you know, who talks about the manger. Um, Matthew's the one who talks about the magi, who talks about the star. But they get blended, right? When we see, you know, the the crash scene laid out at Christmas time, or you know, even in a mall or wherever you happen to see it, right? Um, but for the, um, if you're wanting to defend the perpetual virgin uh, virginity of Mary. Um, Luke's gospel really isn't so much of the problem because uh, it, it talks about the Annunciation to Mary. By the way, today's March 25th, the, on the Catholic calendar, the, the Feast of the Annunciation, when, you know, here we are nine months before Christmas when, you know, Gabriel, Angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, uh, I've got a little bit of news for you. Um, so, oh, well, it, yeah, so that's... Yeah. That, well, what an amazing time to pick. We, that wasn't a coincidence, right? <laughs> yeah. Just a coincidence. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but, but Matthew's gospel uh, is the problem. If you're wanting to defend the perpetual vir virginity of Mary, because Matthew's gospel says, uh, you know, that after Jesus was born, uh, Joseph and Mary lived together. There's even a line, I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but um, that they had no relations until after Jesus was born, something to that effect. Right. Um, so again, if what you want to do is say, you know, this text is important, but I think we need to change it. You do what the author of the Proto-Evangelium of James does. And so this text was written, it's a Greek text, uh, second century at some point, early, second, early to mid second century. And it tells the story of Mary, tells the story of her, of, of her birth and uh, uh, where she's already kind of special. And that then when she's only a couple of two, three years old, she's kind of given to the temple in Jerusalem as this kind of, uh, you know, temple virgin, so to speak. And then, of course, when she gets to be to the age of 12 and she's on the verge of, uh, of, of menstruation and would thereby defile uh, the temple, they need to they need to find somebody to take care of her. And the intriguing twist to this story is that Mary is presented, obviously she's 12, so she's being presented here as quite young. 
Joseph gets presented as somebody who's old, who already has not only old, but so old that he already has full grown sons, right? This, by the mm -hmm. way, is how do you go about explaining references to the brothers of Jesus? Well, here you go. It's, uh, it's Joseph's kids by a previous marriage, right? So Joseph is a widower. He gets selected to take care of Mary. He's not being selected as her husband, right? He's being selected as her guardian. And so, you know, the rest of the story ends up like absorbing elements that you know from the stories from, from Matthew and Luke. Um, but then the, the really crazy bit happens when uh, they don't quite make it to, to Bethlehem. You know, uh, Mary, Joseph has saddled an ass. One of his sons is leading it. Joseph is walking behind. Mary is on the donkey and she cries out and she says, you know, the child within me is pressing forth. Joseph finds a cave in the desert in which to hide Mary, and he runs off to find a midwife. Uh, you know, of course, as fate should have it, he happens to bump into one. He quickly tells, you know, the story how he's been, he's been entrusted with this young virgin who became pregnant somehow, and she's about to give birth, and hey, come help me, she's in a cave. Well, by the time they get back to the cave, there's this blinding flash of light, and Jesus is born, right? So again, emphasizing the, the uh, how supernatural this birth is. Um, the midwife goes in and, you know, kind of comforts Mary. Uh, and then she leaves. And as she's leaving, she encounters a woman who gets named Salome. And the midwife tells Salome the story of what's just happened. That, hey, this virgin just gave birth in a cave. Salome says, are you crazy? That, 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 that can't happen. And then the really weird bit, Salome goes in to physically inspect Mary's condition, right? I mean, this is like, you know, the reference here is, uh, or maybe we think of like the doubting Thomas extending his fingers into Jesus' side. So Salome is in physically inspecting Mary's condition and her hand immediately, you know, withers up and is you know, blackened like it's burnt by fire for her doubt, right? Or for, for touching the, the Holy Virgin Mary. Um, of course, uh, an angel appears and says, well, hold out your hand by that little baby infant and, and he'll, he'll heal it, which is what happens. And then there's kind of a denouement, you know, the text ends. Um, but we're, we're, we're circling back around here to the, the clip that you showed, right, of just how earlier stories get absorbed and then changed um mm. in in retellings of narratives to advance your own theological agenda and in this case for this author that mary was a virgin when jesus was conceived during the birth of jesus and after the birth and of after. jesus <laughs> right yeah that's that's why i was gonna say that's a wild std to have that someone's hand would shrivel and become blackened um right but but that, but i oh. didn't because that would be a distasteful joke that would um, be distasteful. Um, but but here's uh, why I forgot to add one little element, right? Is, yeah. okay, so, you know, I mentioned the crash scene at the beginning before we started talking about this, right? You always have, look look at any crash scene, look at any piece of Christian art. There's always an ox and an ass, like right hovering right behind the little baby Jesus's head or right nearby. The, you don't hear about an ox or an ass in Matthew's gospel or in Luke's. Luke talks about shepherds, he talks about sheep, but he never mentions an ox and an ass, right? Where do they come from? It comes from the Proto-Evangelium of James, right? So there, there, there are elements oh. in the Christmas story, or at least in the present, the visual presentation of the Christmas story that all of us see every single year uh, that have nothing to do with the canonical gospels from the New Testament. So let me just share that because I've never, 
given it two seconds of thought. So you've got like there's a bunch of um, obviously. Um, yeah, well, different it, ones. none of the text say anything about camels either, but uh, but those do <laughs> those do crop up, by the way, in 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 other sources, later sources. Wow, that's super. It's super interesting that um, because obviously this would be like the the stables, right? This is like the idea. Mm -hmm. I should have uh, found some uh, some actual some actual like. Uh, oh, there, you've, you've got one there. Look. Just to the, oh, right, yeah. to the right there. Yeah, right. Interesting. The opposite, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's super interesting. And you just you just never think about how... Because it's like you said, these things still affect our lives today, but not in the way that we would... Uh, we, 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 we realize. Like, it's just, it's right there. But it's like... And, and when was James written? Was Did you say it was in the second century? Yeah, um, uh, probably mid-second century. Mid-second century. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's... um. Yeah, this the so the, the the variety of religious like of, of Christian uh, like perspectives is 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 huge. Um, I did want to uh, to uh, come up to um, talk about a little bit about. Um, uh, hang on, let me let me just get my thoughts together. Mm -hmm. Have um, I wanted to show um, some footage, and I I've, I've shown this once before, but I'll, I'll show it with the audio. Um, have you ever been to Prague before? I have uh, in the late '90s. I was there in the middle of winter. Oh yeah, so but that's when that's when we uh, that's when we came out. Um, do you uh, do you did you ever visit the church of um, for, oh, what's it called? Da, da, da. There is a church in Rome called uh, Costel Siv. Jakura Vesh. Oh my gosh, I'll put it in the chat. <laughs> yeah. I think you should do an audio version of your book because I think it's um it'll help me. <laughs> but I think uh, I think Audible would be awesome. But so in in this church, I'll just I'll just let my wife. So my wife and I decided to try and be travel vloggers, and we got tens of views. No one cares about <laughs> travel vloggers. <laughs> but uh, this is our pra this is part of our Prague episode, and so I'll just I'll just show it, and okay. let me know if you can hear it. So apparently in this church behind me, um, about 400 years ago, some guy decided that he wanted to steal something from the church and the church caught him. And so they cut off his hand as arm as punishment and then hung it from the ceiling. And it's been there for the last 400 years. So we're going to go in and see if we can get a photo. <laughs> That was the most beautiful and creepy church I've ever been in in my entire life. So, gonna go in and see. Let me just go back to it. Come on. That's a dead man's hand hanging from a bit of rope or a bit of uh, 400 years old. He tried to steal something and they cut it off, and his hand is just hanging there. It's still, yeah. this is a bad, you know, this is from my taken from my iPhone, but yeah, you can see real photos of it online. It's um, it's wild. <laughs> that, that is wild. I was not aware of that uh, that church. Um, I don't. I don't it's recall. Definitely worth a visit. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely worth a visit. They don't yeah. advertise it. Like it's like you have to look for it. It's like it's hidden behind a beam, and it's it's. But it's there, and it's they've they've done testing on it. Like um, and it's four hundred years old, and and the history says it's about four hundred years old as well. So yeah, super super weird. Um, so something well, you mentioned in your book. Uh, sorry. 
what were you saying? No, I was just going to say it's a, uh, it's a long-standing warning of don't, <laughs> don't try to steal anything from this church. <laughs> yeah. So something that, that kind of I'd never expected to find in your book um, was the Drunken Martyrs Festivals. So festivals became, like Martyrs Festivals became so uh, important. They, you, they, you were saying that they were trying to get um, like a martyr for every day of the year at one stage. Is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, th these, uh, yeah, the, I mean, in terms of the, the, the collation of the, the so-called calendar of the saints or the, you know, the liturgical cycle of the year, um, there, I mean, the, the martyrology, there is some martyr that's named on, on every single day of the year and, uh, actually multiple martyrs, uh, that are named if you were looking at the Roman martyrology or if you're looking at the Greek one as well. Um, and uh, I mean, that sort of slow building kind of gets back to what I was talking about with about why we're drinking mezcal, right? Because you remember a particular person on the particular day of their death and that that sort of annual celebration um, helps, you know, hasten, uh, hasten the process or, or, or uh, enhance the process of memory because it's not just, okay, this happened and we're going to tell this story and then we're going to put it on a shelf. No, you, you, you bring that book down or you bring some sort of abbreviated version of it down. And if you're a priest preaching to your flock on the feast of whoever it happens to be, St. David uh, or St. Whoever, um, you tell that story again, right? Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think you were, why were we bringing uh, this ca the calendar up? Well, the um, the what I didn't realize was that there were these um, martyr festivals happening all mm. the time. But but there was a fifth century monk who was kind of celebrating the fact that he had kept his virginity <laughs> despite going to so many of these drunken martyr festivals. Oh, I see. Right? Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a it's a party. Um, I mean, it depends. Not every single one, and it depends on <laughs> on which one you're talking about. But we do hear from many bishops in antiquity uh, about the necessity of kind of walking a fine line between encouraging their flock to rejoice in the saints and celebrate these people who uh, who, in the case of the martyrs, followed Jesus in death, and to uphold that story of that person on that day as, as something important. But at the same time, they didn't want many of these bishops, they didn't want their, their congregations uh, taking things too far. In, in Augustine's, St. Augustine's Confessions, he tells the story of his own mother, uh, St. Monica, who he says used to bring um, some homemade cakes and wine to sell to have a picnic right on top of a particular tomb and to celebrate the martyrs and augustine says that that his mentor uh saint ambrose of milan uh that, that he you know went after monica for doing this and you know and augustine kind of tries to defend her and says well she was just she was just some small sips of wine from a, from a very tiny glass you know because she had such a, a sober palate right um but the the example that you mentioned is is a great one of uh, that's Theodoret, um, who's the bishop uh, of Cyrus, Cyrus in, in Syria, who's telling this these history of these these monks of Syria, and he mentions one guy, as, as you said, who uh, was this ascetic who boasted of having maintained his virginity despite the large number of martyrs' festivals he had attended in his youth. Um, 
so I mean, the, yeah, the, I mean, the point here is, is that, uh, um, you know, to think that everybody is just uh, in church and praying and um, is, you know, that it's something somber. That's not what it was. You know, you are celebrating your your heroes here. And if this isn't happening in every place and every day. Obviously, you know, work has to get done. But there are some number of red letter days uh, on the calendar that uh, that would have been days of, uh, of of feasting and celebration for sure. It's uh yeah, and do you have any do we have any idea historically about what some of these drunken martyr festivals would have been like? Like, what was it similar to what we see is the uh, in the, like the Day of the Dead in Mexico, or is it? Um, you know, do they meet in the youth hall and play worship music? And like, what, 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 what was the, you know, what was the, what was it like? Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if, uh, if any, I would actually be keen to know if somebody has written some sort of social history. I mean, it, it depends, of course, of where you're talking about and when you're talking about. And these feasts are going to change over time. Um, but uh, at least what we, what we hear about, um, from antiquity is that, uh, you know, to, to rein things in a little bit, right? That you would hear uh, on the, the solemnity of the, the martyr's feast, right? So the, the night before uh, the feast, there's usually some sort of Eucharistic service, some sort of liturgical service. And that's when uh, you may have had, heard, had the, the story of that martyr being read. Um, and then the next day, I mean, you know, who knows? It, 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 just, it just depends on mm. the location yeah um but we do hear there this concern that gets echoed among a number of bishops about wanting to make sure that the celebrations were pious in nature um but mm. clearly they were fighting an uphill battle uh the pope of deep drinks which is the highest patron supporter aaron colt papa aaron colson um as, as asked are these festivals intended to keep the working class pacified um well bread and circuses right um i mean it, uh quite possibly right i mean you, you have um uh you, you know you need a release valve and you're going to have festivals you're going to have days off um, no matter what culture you're talking about or when. And uh, without those, uh, things are going to get pretty difficult for you, um, for, you know, for the, the place that you happen to be living in. So, yeah, sure. Um, it's a release valve. And, mm. uh, you know, they, they, the Martyr's Feast took the place of um, other sorts of celebrations that may have preceded them. Awesome. Uh, Saint uh, D has said, um, Saint Dennis is said to have picked up his head and walked to the place where he wished to have been buried. Is that true? Or is that true? Is that true in history? And is that true? Is <laughs> Sorry. You know, I hope you know what I mean. Um, well, having never seen anybody pick up their head and walk anywhere with it, uh, I'm going to say that the likelihood of that is probably pretty small. Um, okay. That story does sound vaguely familiar, but uh, D has has clearly read the story of Saint Denis uh, more recently than I have. Awesome. Uh, so uh, you you mentioned he was beheaded. I do I do recall that. I know he was beheaded. So yeah. So can we go quickly touch on as we as we kind of like we we're, we're coming near to the end of the episode. I but, but and we've got a lot more things I want to talk about. But you know, hopefully we can do this again sometime. But we've well, I wanted to quickly touch on the relics 
mm-hmm. because you mentioned your book about the relics and I, you know, as a former Pentecostal Christian, the idea of relics was not something that we entertained. Uh, I know the Catholics like relics. Uh, I don't, and I know there are other um, groups of Christians who like relics, but I, I've never really understood their purpose or the, or the history behind them. And I didn't realize that some of them had miracle like kind of powers, like is, is, mm-hmm. is the idea behind them. Could you touch on um, first the purpose and the history of relics? And then we can kind of go into a few. Yeah, well, it's a it's a massive topic as uh, you posted up. I think it was D earlier, right? Who's reading the encyclopedia version, right? Just to give you yeah. a sense of, you know, um, but I mean, when I mean, the, the word our word relic, uh, you know, comes from uh, a Latin term that just means something that's been left behind. Right. Uh, so in the case of the saints, uh, you you may have the actual body parts, you may have bones. Right. Um, but in the case of Jesus, I mean, there there are relics associated with him, too. Uh, for example, even though he's bodily assumed, according to, to Christian belief, uh, he's bodily assumed into heaven. So you don't have the f- pieces of his physical body. Um, you, you do have the tools of torture that touched him. So, for example, uh, the crown of thorns, the cross. Uh, all of the linen wrappings in which uh, he was buried, right? I mean, those were incredibly uh, important relics in, in antiquity um, and through the Middle Ages. Um, in fact, I mean, if, I'm sure people remember the, the horrific fire at, at Notre Dame in Paris just a couple of years ago. And one of the relics that, you know, was uh, believed to be there uh, that was saved by the Parisian fire brigade was the crown of thorns. Uh, it oh, was, uh, yeah, acquired by supposedly by uh, by Saint Louis, by uh, King Louis the Ninth in the uh, the thirteenth century, I believe. Um, and you know he had acquired it. Uh, it had at one point apparently been in the uh, the control of the Byzantine emperor, and then you know it was pawned here and there, and uh, eventually became collateral, and then you know somehow uh, Saint Louis eventually. Uh, got a hold of it, right? But um, to come back to the to the main question that you're asking here, right? Why, why is this interest in relics? Um, I, I don't think, I think it's weird. I think we think relics are weird when you, especially if you're talking about a, a bone, right? Because of its inescapable connection with, with putridity and death. And so it makes probably most of us a little bit squeamish to think uh, here's something that's encased in perhaps gold or jewels and that I'm supposed to be, you know, venerating that. But if you go back to what I was talking about at the very beginning about the, uh, of, of this episode about why we're having mezcal is this idea of there not being a divide between the land of the living and the land of the dead. And from the perspective of many Christians, the saints, though dead and though in heaven, are still physically present in their remains on earth and you know can intercede if you are going and praying to this saint for help uh, this is not this is not worshiping these saints it's not worshiping their relics but recognizing that the power of their holiness and that they're in the case of the martyrs uh, because of their witness unto death, that they have they have God's ear. They have you know they're they're proximate to God in ways that just your run of the mill uh, dead folk aren't right. Mm-hmm. And you know I I, I th- so again I think that it's weird for us because it's body parts, 
but this desire to possess the remains uh, you know, or, or the things that our, our holiest heroes or even just our regular heroes, you know, once touched is, is universal. Um, I, you know, I, one of the things that was totally fascinating to me is uh, last baseball season, if you follow Major League Baseball at all, when Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees was closing in on this big home run record to break a record that hadn't been uh, uh, that had been held for decades, the Major League Baseball marked did put special marks on all of the balls that were being pitched to Aaron Judge because they wanted to know exactly which ball was the record record breaking one, right? And like mm. you know, uh, I, I I tell a version of this story um, in the book. But baseballs and bones are pretty hard to tell apart. One is just as indistinguishable from the next, right? Like, what is it, what what makes it so special? But you know, if if you go on eBay and you you know you look for somebody who's who's selling a jacket, you might sell a jacket for fifty bucks. But if it's a jacket that Davy, David Bowie wore, all of a sudden it's worth thousands of dollars, right? Yeah, so I'd love a so jacket I mean, that David Bowie wore. Well, absolutely, <laughs> right? But but the point here is is that it's I don't think it's that weird that we have this interest in the things that our heroes once touched, and mm. in the case of the history of Christianity, what would be more valuable than the remains of something that was credited with healing powers. This isn't just an mm. object like, you know, like a baseball and say, hey, you know, I've got the one that Aaron Judge hit. Uh, this is something that was, uh, uh, you know, accredited with possibly bringing sight to the blind and, you know, healing your illness or whatever. Um, and, you know, the uh, we, we have instances, you know, or we have examples, plenty of examples of, registries that are kept at particular shrines to saints of all of the miracles that have been attributed to that particular saint. Um, it, I mean, it, it, that alone is, is totally fascinating, literarily, just these monastic registries of, of miracles that have been uh, attributed to X, Y, or Z saint. Mm. Yeah. So, so the obvious question is, Historically speaking, mm -hmm. how certain are we that the crown of thorns that was, you know, saved is the actual crown of thorns or the shroud of Turin or um, the holy foreskin that you mentioned um, in <laughs> the previous email? Like, how do we yeah. know? And maybe you could go into the holy foreskin as well. But how do we know that the like? Do we have any that we know for certain came from antiquity? Um, uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure that there are some relics of much later saints um, that could be verifiable or verifiably from from them. Um, do we have the actual crown of thorns? Uh, I'm going to say that's rather highly unlikely. Um, okay. But, um, you know, the point is, again, it's that there is an object around which uh, there is so much interest around which there are so many stories, right? You mentioned the Shroud of Turin, right? Um, that Shroud of Turin is, is quite late. I don't think we have any reference to it until something like the middle of the 14th century. Um, but there were plenty of other cloths associated with Jesus that existed long before the Shroud of Turin did. Um, one of, the, one of the, the stories that I love is uh, of the image of Edessa, 
so Edessa is uh, uh, the ancient name of the, the city of Urfa, which is in southeastern Turkey. It was actually decimated by the, the recent earthquake. Um, but the story goes something like this. Eusebius, who's the great church historian of the fourth century, tells the story of a king by the name of Abgar in the first century who was suffering from some incurable illness, unclear what it was. And he writes a letter to Jesus. And according to the story, Jesus gets the letter, you know, and reads it. And, it, you know, it says, hey, I hear you're this wonder worker that you can, you know, cure illnesses. Would you consider coming up to Odessa to help me out? Jesus, apparently, according to this story, writes him back, says, no, I can't make it. I've got a lot of things going on down here, um, but I'll send one of my disciples, correct? <laughs> yeah. You know, I just and, love Jesus, like, you know, like a, a white button, like collar job. Just like, no, I'm busy. Like, yeah, keep, anyway, keep going. Yeah, itinerary <laughs> full for this week. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he, you know, according, but the, the story changes over time. All right. So um, in some versions of the story, the Jesus's letter itself becomes this wonder working relic that, you know, gets waved about on the, from the, the, the walls of Edessa when the Persians are trying to take the city and it protects the city from harm. Um, in other versions of the story, it, you know, changes all the time. Uh, it wasn't a letter that Jesus sent back, but rather it was a portrait of himself and that this portrait then, you know, saves the city. Um, and then it morphs into, um, you know, actually an, uh, an image of him uh, in, in one sort of final version, uh, that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and when in the gospel text, it says, that, you know, he's sweating and it's like it's like blood, you know, like uh, the drops of sweat are falling like blood, that he impresses, you know, the image of his face on a cloth, that he gives it to Thomas and that Thomas then gives it to Thaddeus and Thaddeus eventually makes his way with it to uh, to Edessa and that that's what heals uh, the, the king, right? I mean, we've got, and there are other stories, for example, the, the veil of the Veronica, which was incredibly important um, in the Middle Ages. But the point of the story is that they're all, again, all these convoluted stories that change. Is it a letter? Is it a portrait? Is it, you know, he somehow he impressed it on cloth? Um, but that there's this sense of connection with Jesus, and there's this sense that anything that he touched would be some sort of wonder-working relic. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and people have heard of the Shroud of Turin, but there are tons of these, these sweat cloths, uh, these, uh, they're known as, it's a sudarium, right? Or handkerchiefs. We, you, but you hear in Acts, right? In Acts, it says, uh, it says about Paul that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that, that he touched could then be brought to the sick and it would cure them, right? So there's a biblical precedent here and back to our whole point that you, that you brought up earlier of you tell a story, people hear the story, then they expand on that story. Well, here you've got a biblical mention, first, I mean, first of all, of Jesus being wrapped in linen. John's gospel talks about a head cloth that's discarded somewhere. Acts talks about what I just said about, you know, handkerchiefs and aprons being brought to Paul. And so then you tell more stories and there's just this explosive proliferation of these stories. And the Shroud of Turin is just a Johnny come lately to the story. There's so many other stories that existed way before that about these uh, powerful cloths. So, yeah. What do you think about Ron Wyatt? Ron Wyatt. Mm, do you know who that is? You have to help me out. 
He's uh he's claimed to a lot of Christians really stand behind him. He's claimed okay. to find Noah's Ark, uh, the uh, the uh, the Roman um, wheels in the Dead Sea. He's 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 uh, um, the the mountain uh, where Jesus like sent fire down. I think he found that. But the most the, the most interesting one he found is apparently he was this um this 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 um this preacher um from a church that doesn't really believe in the power of the holy spirit as today and he's walking along in israel and he just points and says this is where jesus was jesus is uh the ark of the covenant is and they they um this is an amazing story but they 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 go down into this cave and they find the ark of the covenant and they see a crack above it and if you look up through the crack they realize that's where there's this black there's this black matter that has fallen down. They, they realize above it is where Jesus was crucified and it fell down onto the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And you know, it's it and and it collapsed the cave collapsed and they could no longer find it. But a lot of people believe that this is that's a con- real that's convenient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and uh and, and it was it was covered up, but a lot of people really believe that this is a, a true thing that happened. Um I'll just try and find um um uh but yeah like he's got like they had apparently they he sent blood samples to certain um groups in the uh in the in in israel to get it measured and they said it was both male and female blood and like and all this like it was it's um it's very wild i i don't know if i, I wish i had you should look into it because it's it's not something that is not is, is taken very seriously by a lot of um, Christians today. Like it's like people when you when you see um, someone make a claim that they found Noah's Ark, they'll say, "Oh no, Ron White found this years ago." Like this is this is, and they try to cover it up. It's a conspiracy, you know. And they they don't want they don't want the world to know about the the real Jesus. And he's very convincing um, from a from a uh, like he's a very good pre- the way he presents his ideas. But I think it's yeah, it's definitely all. But yes, very convenient, I would say. But I was yeah. just wondering if you had a perspective historically <laughs> of that. Um, well, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can't comment. That's that's okay. But, no, yeah, no, no comment. But uh, some something tells me he probably didn't find Noah's Ark. Okay. Okay. Uh, I just do want to shout out uh, your kind of stuff. So. Um, We've got, uh, you've got your University of Toronto um, information here that people can check out, but you've blogged on twice now on um, Bart Ehrman's blog as a guest blogger. And that's how I found you actually. Um, So uh, people, if you subscribe to Bart Ehrman's blog, you can check that out. Um, And of course you have your book uh, that people can go purchase and the Amazon link is in the description so you can just order it. It's it's fantastic. I really do recommend people check it out. It's a a great book. Um, Just even just, it looks amazing. The, the artwork is amazing, and the the information and it is so dense. Uh, it's worth every penny. If you want to support this channel, uh, you can become a member by clicking the join button here as well, um, and then you get little badges and custom emojis and some um, personal updates from myself. And your comments will pop up, and I'll make sure I read them. But if you want to become a Patreon member as well, you can see our behind the scenes stuff and our information. Uh, and you can also, uh, when I see you come up in, in the chat, I'll make sure I, I, I give special favoritism to the patrons because you guys are what keep this show afloat. I really appreciate it. Uh, it, it means the world to me. Uh, so I did want to ask you, though, uh, to, as we kind of like not wrap up the interview right now, but like as we kind of getting near the end of the interview, I would I'd love to, for you to actually tell me about this holy foreskin. What are you talking about? Um, 
Yeah, so, so colleagues of mine have written about this. I'm, I'm not going to be able to say a whole lot about it other than I believe, uh, I mean, somebody can easily Google this, but I believe that is also at Notre Dame, the supposed holy foreskin. Um, yeah, would, would, would that have been kept uh, for posterity? And would a piece of flesh like that have survived for 2,000 years? Seems a bit unlikely to me, but um, nevertheless. So yeah, go ahead. So wait, wait, is it is it supposed to be like Jesus or something? Um, Jesus' foreskin? Or... Uh, yeah, there we go. Wow. Is it? Okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I never thought that. So. I mean, the, the, okay. it's just, I mean, it's ingenious, right? In that, okay, he was bodily resurrected, but wait, there must be some little part of him left behind because. <laughs> yeah, and then, um, and then it must be, yeah. yeah, it must be that. Oh, yeah. wow. Ah, oh, that's, 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 that's incredible. Um, yeah, wow. So. Do do we do we have do, is that something that burnt up and do you know if we if we still actually have it or like if it's like is it being verified? I, I, like, I, I, is it I, a first century full scale? I, or like uh it, it, that seems rather unlikely. I don't even I don't know what it is or if anybody has trotted it out, but uh yeah. I, I, sh I should have read up about that before I <laughs> no, that's on, okay. But, uh, it was kind of yeah, just a, my, it was my apologies. So um what are the another thing that you kind of talk about in your book that I'm excited to to dive more into as we get into the later chapters um, when I finish finish it? But you mentioned about the, there's a lot of miracles, right, uh, attributed to uh, martyrs and saints. What is besides? I mean, the the you know there's some interesting stories with um the first saint you talk about, um, Alban, and who you know mm -hmm. he dries up the river and you know and then uh, or the you know not being you know uh, was it Bartholomew or it was uh, no it was Polycarp he was set on fire and he's just like okay through it all he, he, when he by the way I, I forgot to read out when he was dying is it true that he said I bless you Father for judging me worthy of this hour so that in company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ is that historical I mean again uh, we don't it's hard to say we have eyewitness reports and that mm -hmm. this, this text is written after the fact. Um, and even if it is being, even if we can assume, you know, uh, maximally speaking here, that this was being written by an eyewitness, um, what parts are embellished, what parts are added later, um, it's extremely difficult for us to say such and such actually happened. On the other hand, we also can't say such and such didn't happen. Um, mm. just simply, we just simply don't have the evidence. We have literary stories and some of those you might say, well, the context makes sense that we know that this was such and such was going on in the Roman empire at the time. Like it's not out of the question. Yeah. Yeah. Surely people were killed. Surely Christians were killed, uh, in, in antiquity. That's, uh, that's not arguable, but, uh, a line by David, Bo uh, Daniel Boyarin that I'm fond of quoting is, uh, being killed is an event. Martyrdom is uh, is a piece of literature. It's a genre, right? And you have to, I think, hold those two things uh, apart. Yes, people may have been killed. Was it like this? Did all of these miracles happen? I mean, that's, that's up to the individual reader to decide. Um, my perspective as a historian is one of uh, extreme skepticism, and I'm not witnessing 
divine intervention in my everyday life. So that's not something that I bring to uh, my analyses of these texts. Again, though, um, I, I don't want to come across as saying none of this is true. To me, that's actually not the most interesting question for me. For me, the most interesting question is, why do we have this proliferation of stories about all of these martyrs? And how does that go about shaping uh, the culture of Christianity in late antiquity and, and uh, in the Middle Ages and really up to the present? Um, mm. The persistence of these stories is what's interesting to me. Yeah, the, you, you quote David, uh, David uh, Eagleman, um, who says that every human dies three deaths. The first, he says, is the obvious one, when the body ceases to function. The second death is when the body is uh, consigned to the grave. And the third is the moment sometime in the future when your name is spoken for the very last time. Um, of most of the thousands of Christians said to have been martyred in Persia, nothing remains. Yeah, it's 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 profound, profound idea, isn't it? Yeah, well... Uh, I, I love that from Eagleman, from uh, from his book, Some, uh, which is a totally fascinating read. Um, but that, again, gets back to what we were talking about right at the very beginning of this episode, David, about the importance of remembering names and invoking these names of these past heroes, right? The, you, the, I, if you read that again from Eagleman, right, that third and final death, Right. The first one is when your body ceases to function. The second one, when you're buried. And the third one, and this, oh my God, how does this just not rip your heart out? When somebody mm. somewhere says your name for the very last time, right? And mm. th then you're totally forgotten. Uh, actually, that, yeah. that's, that's a perfect ending because, and segue because that's the conceit of that Disney film, uh, uh, Coco, that Pixar film, right? Is that if you've got this image this photograph of your relative up on the altar, if you don't you know, have that person's photograph up there year after year, eventually in the land of the dead, they, they, they pass away, they fade away like Marty McFly in the photograph from Back to the Future, right? They die this final death, right? Um, and in fact, I, I, first, I first came across that Eagleman quote, I'd read his book, but I was reminded of it by an article in the New York Times a few years ago by Bill Shapiro, who I think used to be the, the photograph uh, photography editor of Life magazine, where he used that. And, and this is somebody, Bill Shapiro, who collects all these old photographs. He goes around to garage sales and like gets all of these other people's photographs, uh, you know, from, from decades ago. And that again is just totally rips your heart out of like, whose photos are these? Like why were, whose family photos are they? Why were they discarded? And like, this is, these are all photos of people who are decades dead and am I the last one to ever look at this person, right? The importance mm. of memory. So, you know, the importance of having an, an annual means of celebrating these saints um, is, it, that's something that, that persists throughout, uh, that's, that's a thread that goes throughout this book. Uh, and the importance of names, the importance of saying their names. It's galling to a lot of these uh, historians who write about the martyrs. And when they talk about, you know, uh, oh, this many people were killed and there was thousands of people killed, you know, and that they can't tell the, the story of each individual person and give each individual name. But, you know, as, as Paula Fredrickson uh, once put it, it's not as if tens upon tens of thousands of people were being Christians were being killed in late antiquity. Some were, but it wasn't tens upon tens of thousands. But what do you have? You have tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of people reading the stories of the few who were and holding up their memory. 
And that's uh, that's that is a perfect way to kind of describe your book. And 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 um, the when I was I was doing re recently I was doing research on a family tree, and I remember I, I it's so annoying. McDonald's is a, such a large clan in Scotland um, that um, that you know we go we, if I, if I could get to if I could get to I think seventeen fifty A.D. I could trace my lineage back to Somerled of eleven fifty A.D. But I can't. I can get to 1780, which is when the census starts in Scotland. So I'm missing like 40 years where I could like tie it all together, which is so frustrating. But one of the things that um, uh, that I found really profound when I was looking into this is I was looking into the census dates of some of my um, family, you know, my great, 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 great grandfather or whatever. And it's like his name is written in handwriting on a census form and the date. And that's right. it. That's all yeah. that's remains of him, like or or, or his, his wife. It's like nothing else is known about that person, whether he was a good man, a bad man, whether he was uh, an alcoholic or a priest. We don't we don't know anything. He's just that all that's left of him is his little bit of handwriting and the date that like that's it. And, and it was like, whoa, and it's like how many people in history do we have that? How many stories were just never written down? How many? You know, and 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 it was at that stage I started cataloging everything. I, in fact, every time we have a family um, gathering now, I stick my my uh, phone just on the uh, on next near the table, and I just record the whole conversation and then upload it privately on YouTube because you know. And now we look back, we got conversation from five years ago when Nan was with us, and we can we can see like a family dinner, and it's like those moments are, are kind of special. And and I think that's your book kind of. You know, you've had some people say, no, like <laughs> I used to post on Twitter that it, um, uh, uh, too long didn't read, like he didn't like it. Like some Christians have come up against your book and said, no, Christianity is not a cult of the dead. But, and although it is a, a title that tries to capture people's attention, what you're kind of, you're not saying it in a negative way. You're saying it in kind of a, um, an honoring, respectful, um, like, uh, in an honoring way, you know, in like the, it's steeped in, in Christianity is steeped in the blood of its martyrs. And, and that's the, the whole point. And I guess to end, um, you, you, there's a quote, uh, by Ken, uh, Candida Moss in, in, uh, inescapable, but repugnant conclusion that dying for Christ may be the central rather the peripheral, peripheral, um, rather than peripheral part of the Christian experience. Mm -hmm. And, not, that's not to say that every Christian needs to become a martyr, but it seems to be what you're kind of getting at is like to be remembered in Christianity uh, and, and to, to kind of uh, like the Christendom as a whole, like as you think of it, is about the the martyrdom and the um, experience of dying as Christ. Is that right? Or can you maybe expand on that as we kind of close up this interview? Yeah, well, I, I think Candida's point there was uh, that the martyrs, to borrow from a title of one of her books, uh, are regarded as the other Christs, right? Uh, that's the actual title of, of her book. And if you look at so much of this literature, just as we, you know, we've talked about, you mentioned, you read from Ignatius's letters, we talked about St. Alban, um, but this willingness at least according to these stories, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, recognizing, as Ignatius put it, that that's what it means to be a true disciple. Um, and I think that that's what she was getting at with uh, the quotation that you that you just read. Um, repugnant, perhaps, to 
many Christians today to think that this is the particular calling, um, but uh, not repugnant at all if you're operating in the era of late antiquity and you have this understanding of, well, this is what happened to Stephen, this is what happened to the apostles, this is what happened to uh, the people who knew people who knew the apostles, that that, that that sort of testimony in blood by way of following in the footsteps of Jesus is a simple expectation. It's jarring for us to hear that in 2023. That's not most people's conception of Christianity. Um, but that, in uh, as you said, and thank you for saying it, in not in a pejorative way, not in a uh, hey, this is stupid sort of way, or hey, this is crazy sort of way, but hey, but it, but in a way that what I'm trying to say is this is amazing. This is really fascinating um, in terms of the culture of Christianity that is built around the memory of the dead. Hmm. And, 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 and that is exactly what your book is all about. Um, and just to, just to promote it one more time, guys, make sure check the book out. If you, if it sounds interesting to you, this book is amazing. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of um, Kyle Smith uh, on uh, future episodes of maybe this show and maybe some other shows. I'm, I, I think you need to get get out there because your content is truly awesome. And this isn't your first book, by the way, this is your first popular level book, right? Then the other books are more uh, it, it, academic in nature. Yeah. The other books are more academic in nature. Uh, yeah. If you're, uh, if you're up late, and you are trying to get to sleep, you should probably read one of those. But uh, this book, very different. I hope it's uh, it's entertaining. So, Doorknob yeah. had said um, he disagreed with, um, uh, he said, it is true, Christianity is not a cult of the dead. It's cults of the dead. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, D said, this is fascinating. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, I, th th this really was fascinating. Thank you so much. And thank you for introducing me to this. Um, I'm very surprised by this, by the way. I'm very surprised. I think I'm going to go out there and make my wife uh, take, a, take a little bite of, um, of it. It's, uh, it's an interesting flavor, I'll say that much. 